This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not the views and opinions of anyone. It's just a podcast, dude. If we're all ready, all yeah, right. I think you have that that voice. Let's go ahead and open it with that. Do we want to do a cold open where we just start in the middle of a conversation and then welcome people to? Or do we just want to start it off welcoming people to? You already started. Okay. We already all right. Started. So there we go. Okay. So we've already started. Uh, all right, everybody. Welcome to Two Smarks and a Mark. I'm Ray. I'm Smark. <laughs> I am Adan Wateo. I am the Smark as well. And I am Mike Ford. I am your Mark. This is the podcast where we don't necessarily do the news of the day. We actually go a little bit more into a deep dive. We get into the individual characters, the individual stories, and storylines. Today we are talking about the legend, the foundation, the everyman. <laughs> the everyman. I I wouldn't go that far, but I mean, we, we are talking about Vincent Kennedy McMahon. Younger brother to Ed McMahon. <laughs> A little known fact because it's actually not true. It's uh, it's correct until it's proven false. Um, okay, so I guess we should just go ahead and get into it. So yeah, Adon, some young life, I think, is where we're starting totally. at the beginning. So you see when a man and a woman really love each other and then... Skip forward. <laughs> so uh, Vince was born in Pinehurst, North Carolina, August 24th, 19... Don't worry about that. <laughs> I lived in North Carolina. I did not live in Pinehurst, but, you know, been, been to the state. Anyone? Anyone? No? No. Nope. I have not been, no. Beautiful state. We love our North Carolina listeners. And our South Carolina listeners, we don't discriminate. <laughs> all around the world. So, I guess I should throw this out there. Vince isn't, like, Vince isn't all-powerful. He's got a lot of money now, that kind of thing. But when he was growing up, he really wasn't like that. He actually was in a pretty messed up household. So, Vince growing up grew up with his mom in a trailer park of all places. Vince, again, senior, his biological dad, they were married to Vince's mom at some point. And then later on, they divorced. Vince was very young, doesn't remember anything about this. And he actually didn't have any interaction with his dad until he was about 12 years old. Sounds like some shady kind of story. It's... Oh, park. I it, mean... So Vince, uh, it, it gets real yeehaw real fast. Let's just put it that way. So Vince was growing up in this trailer park. He, in his time, until up until he was 12, he went through about five stepfathers. Um, and reportedly, according to a 2001... About one every two years... It, yeah, it's pretty fast, dude. Mark, Mark, Check. Mark, Mark, yep. <laughs> he reportedly got assaulted and attacked by some of these. He was abused a lot. He was one of a couple kids. And and one in particular that's notable, his name is Leo Lupton. Leo Lupton, and then this is again, according to the 2001 interview in Playboy, it took me a very long time to read, by the way. I, I tried <laughs> to read that one, but the pages all stuck together. <laughs> Hey, when uh, that happens. Leo Lupton was an electrician who really loved to beat up on Vince. And Vince usually was the first one to jump in and kind of take that so his brother and his sister didn't have to do that. So he had gone through about, the mom had gone through about five stepfathers. Leo Lupton being the most notable one because Leo, Vince hates Leo. Vince, Vince himself said that, I wish I could be there when he dies and see him die. So Vince is not leading a good life. It leads him drinking and sort of acting out in school. And probably the most telling thing about this is that he's actually, again, this is in the interview, he was, he alluded to being sexually assaulted by his mom. Now that, yeah, that was something that I had, I had been able to track down like some rumors about. The abuse from Leo was kind of very often spoken about, but there were some allusions. Were you, I mean, were you able to get any sort of clarification on that story? He doesn't really talk about it a whole lot. And what I sort of ran into is... I mean, would you? I mean, I mean fair. fair point. No, yeah. 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 What I ran into is that I feel like when I was reading these interviews, especially in Playboy 2001, 
I gotta stop saying that so much. I feel like we're getting sponsored by them. <laughs> Anyways. If Playboy would like to sponsor us, however, uh, I would just like to put in a personal plug that we are a great podcast and fun to listen to. <laughs> and continue. Uh, in the interviews, and a lot of the interviews that Vince does, I couldn't tell if he was working or if he was being genuine. And in this interview, it seemed like a real mix of both. Like, on the one hand, I could tell, oh, you're totally promoting your XFL that's going to succeed, right? And you're promoting yourself and protecting yourself. And then there's, like, these moments of vulnerability where he's like, my mother, I mean, I don't want to say that she did it, but she did stuff to me. You so know? Do, you, do you think that that is part of, again, and I, I guess we'll get into this a lot later and maybe more into the second episode, but do you think that is part of who Vince McMahon is or the backstory of the character of Vince McMahon. I think Vince calls it the backstory of the character who Vince McMahon is, but I very much think that that's 100% who he is. I think who he plays in WWE and, you know, in all the storylines that he's done is just an extension of himself turned up just a little bit further than it normally is. But I don't think it's that far off base. You could even you make... You don't think it's just cut out of whole cloth. But at the same time, I mean, a good story makes for better tickets. And, or, well, exactly. And so. if he's on national television, the man is promoting that's what he does and that's the thing with vince is that like he is so good at blurring these lines first of all he's also very good at protecting himself but he's so very good at blurring these lines to where like i couldn't really tell even though they had these moments where he seemed genuinely vulnerable and he was talking about his life but so yeah so he was assaulted sexually abused by his mom he doesn't go into detail about it leo lupton abused him as well fun fact leo lupton actually ends up marrying his cousin vince's cousin okay. after divorcing his mom yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it was very yeehaw very quickly. I mean, to be fair, he didn't marry his cousin, True. which helps. But but, but definitely keeping it in the family. <laughs> I only lived in North Carolina for two years, but um, I heard some things. <laughs> so Vince is dealing with this. Naturally, you're going to lash out. You're going to honestly, like when it comes to sexual abuse, you're going to be hypersexual, and you're going to see that a lot as we talk about it more. So he acts out, does a bunch of things. He meets his dad at age 12. Dad basically came to visit, say hi in the trailer park from down in his lofty studio apartment in New York or whatever. Talks to him. And Vince talks about it like he just fell in love with his dad. He said he knew the moment he met his dad, he loved him right away. They immediately bonded. His dad, Vince Sr., ended up taking him in. Take him basically like a Cinderella story. Let me take you away from all this hullabaloo that you're dealing with and do something better. Yeah, it seemed as though Vince Sr. Uh, didn't know how to handle a child, but very much wanted a son. Yeah, and, you know, even Vince himself says, you know, I love my dad, and I immediately love my dad. We had a great relationship, but there was always that thing in the back of my mind, and he knew, too, that we just, there was all this time that we missed, and it felt like they were trying to catch up. Vince says that himself in 2001 interview, again, in Playboy. So that's that's something that I wanted to throw out there because that's going to play mean, into it later, I think. To be fair, this wasn't all Playboy. I saw an interview with Matt Lauer. It was uh, show headliners and showstoppers or something like that. Anyway, it was an interview with Matt Lauer. And he went into the same thing and basically told the exact same story of meeting his dad. So, I mean, that doesn't seem like a... That seems like whether or not it's true, that's the official story. That's not getting too far below the Vince McMahon mask. That's canon, essentially, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. canon. So we fast forward a little bit. Vince 
goes to Fishburn uh, Military School in Waynesboro, West Virginia. At what age did he go to military school? I want to say he was probably about 16 to 15 when he got sent off. Because okay. they couldn't afford military school, which is why when he went to his dad, he was still rambunctious. He still had a lot of energy, was reportedly fighting a lot, drinking. Vince even said that he did some alcohol, like old school, like drug running one time. I mean, um, all before the age of 16. That's what he's saying. He's starting to sound more like Bruce Wayne story. Well, so Vince goes to military school, and he basically graduates with like a 2.01, I think is what he graduated with. And the hijinks that Vince is doing even then sort of like reflect now. I mean, he's reportedly some of the things he did, including giving laxative to the commandant's favorite dog, so he shits all over the apartment, stealing his car without his knowledge and then bringing it back after a joyride, drinking, alcohol use, fighting. He reportedly used to go fight Marines for fun at a, at a certain, like, spot. Like, a lot of, like, tough guy stuff is what it comes down to is what he was it doing. It sounds like he was trying to prove something, honestly. I mean, But also, uh, and I was not able to confirm this, he claims to be the first person ever courts-martialed from that military academy. Yes. For a prank involving planning to drop trow at graduation but not actually performing the act. Now, I was not able to verify if he was the first or only person to ever be courts-martialed from this military academy. That sounds like some tales that I've heard some people that I know tell. Not always the most truthful. Exactly. And there's a lot of this. I mean, Vince, very much the the idea that I get from his, he's just this macho guy who tries to be macho. And honestly, he's a perfect fit for wrestling. I mean, the wrestling industry is full of macho guys trying to be better than each other and tougher. And Vince is just the toughest and most macho of them all is the way he sees himself. It is testosterone-fueled spectacle. At the age of 16, what I'm picturing is taking a shot of vodka, Wrestling a bear, shirtless, on the river, Vincent Mann. But you got to remember, this was before the steroids. But, I mean, he's trying to prove something with all these stories. He is still pretty scrawny. I mean, I've seen pictures of the kid. He was not exactly the strapping example of testosterone that he has become in his old age. He he was uh, he was kind of a scrawny little kid. So I could see him getting into some trouble. All of the trouble at the level he claims he got into, I don't know. But I I could definitely see him getting into some trouble, especially considering the way he grew up. Now, mind you, you have to, like, after he met his dad, he started getting influences from the other pro wrestlers. You know, because naturally you're in that environment. Dad takes you backstage, says hi to the wrestlers. One that he spoke about notably was Jerry Graham. Jerry Graham was a, to me, he sounded like Ric Flair like a version of Ric Flair. Very okay. outspoken, outgoing, always wore red, red car, red boots, red shoes, that kind of thing. Full-blown alcoholic. I mean, Vince said he would ride in his car and he would be running red lights, yelling at people because they're telling him to slow down, you know, that kind of thing. Now, when it started, and, and back in that day, if I understand correctly, the kind of the villains wore black and the heroes wore white. So wearing red, was he a, was he a heel was he a face? What, how would you describe him and his, his red loincloth? I would say Jerry Cram was likely a heel. Just from the way he seemed to act in real life, it was just probably a natural extension of Jerry Graham's going to be that showboat. You're not going to like that showboat. I mean, when someone's talking about how rich they are and this and that, you naturally want to be like, oh, you're, you're kind of an ass. You know, you're trying to like make yourself seem like bigger than you really are. You can tell that people are trying. 
Gotcha. gotcha. Um, so okay. he, he was probably likely likely that type of person. But that was one of the influences that Vince had. And Vince thought he was like, he's so cool. And, of course, as Vince got older, he's like, man, this guy has a lot of issues. But it also makes sense that one of his major influences, Vince, would become the ultimate heel that he became. Yes. So Vince ultimately is able to graduate in uh, 1964. So he gets out of school. By this time, he's already talking and dating Linda McMahon. Well, she's not McMahon what at the school? time. <clears throat> what school was that again? Fishburne Military School in West Virginia. So he got courts martialed, but he's still graduated. Still graduated with a 2.01, according to him. Okay. And again, like I couldn't verify this court martial thing that he speaks of. There is no real records of that. So. And again, I am willing to believe the 2.01 because you don't graduate with much less. And that's not really something you brag about. So I'm, I'm willing to accept that on, at face value. Eventually he graduates. He's dating Linda at this time. He's also very rambunctious. He likes women. I think that's, that's something that kind of follows him throughout his whole life. And I mean, who can blame him? He just really, really, really likes women. But he, he's dating Linda McMahon. They get married a couple years later. He's like 21 years old. I mean, he's, he's barely... They were together for a long time. Are they still together? They are still together now. They have, they have been together for a long time. A very long time, and through multiple women, in fact. And they're still together now. I mean, like, I don't want to say money talks, but, I mean. Mm-hmm. Hey, whatever makes it work. I mean, would you stay for that money? Yeah, I would. Cheat on me? Okay, bye, sweetheart. No. <laughs> hey. Bring back the milk and bread. Why take half when you can have it all? Exactly. I mean, that's my thought, is that it is money. I mean, he has a history of cheating and doing these kind of things and she still sticks around. So I'm like, it must be real easy to accept that when you're sleeping on a pile of money and you're driving to a luncheon with a political leader in uh, Aston Martin, you know? Linda's probably like, oh, something less I have to do. Thank you. Check. I mean, yeah, once you, once you kind of accept that that's the way the relationship is, it's kind of easy to say, hey, look, I know I married an asshole. Not only that, but I mean, there's also like new, uh, what is it called? Uh, Polygamy and all this. Oh, yeah. Stuff. oh yeah, yeah, Open marriages. Yeah. Open marriages. Swing, I yeah, mean, yeah. been around forever. And, yeah, uh, so. I mean, again, at some point, I got to admire her for just whatever makes it work. Maybe Not right. a lot of people are staying together in this day and age. Nope. No, that is one way to look at it. But, I mean, overall, the sense that I'm getting from everything that I read about his early life is that Vince is a womanizing man who's trying to be very macho. And he kind of is a perfect fit for wrestling at the time. Wrestling, in case you guys didn't know, is a very tight, closely knit society. And you have to act a certain way in wrestling. You have to say the right thing to the right person. If someone's been in the business for like 20 years, you got to watch your mouth. You can't disrespect them. If you even give the notion that you're challenging them, man, it's not going to go over well. And everyone's trying to jock for position and power and trying to be more macho. Vince is a natural fit for this kind of thing. And so he... But usually, or at least in the old days, back in my day, (laughs) the promoters stayed out of all of that. They promoted, and they had their own little rough-and-tumble communities, you know, and they kind of had their own little individual mafias that controlled their... And and yes, there were some beatdowns, and there was some strong-arm tactics, but... For the most part, the promoters didn't get involved in the wrestlers' antics. It seemed like Vince, whether or not he was wrestling, even when he was a promoter, it seemed like he wanted to be one of the performers as well. And I agree with you there. Vince kind of really loved wrestling. He's just something about it seemed to like grabbed him, and he seemed to gravitate to it. And he was just a good fit for that because he was planning on being in character, and he had this over-the-top personality. 
But eventually he does get his big break. He So he essentially did a couple of different jobs. He was selling cups at one point and then said that he was talking to a guy about the cups that he was selling, these little paper cups. And the guy looks at him and goes, you don't like this job, do you, Sonny? And Vince thought about it and goes, no, and that was it. He left. So uh, eventually he keeps pastoring his dad. Hey, give me a break. Give me a chance. Just give me a bit in your company. I love the industry. I, I really want to be part of it. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer or a doctor, did not want him to be, have any part of it. Go to school, have a normal job, don't get in this industry, and don't do as I do kind of thing, right? Well, he eventually gets his big break. So Vince said a promoter in Maine got caught stealing, and that's how he gets his break. And according to Vince Sr. and Vince McMahon, they were like, oh, this guy, a small-time dude. I mean, he was stealing. Everybody steals in the industry, right? But he was stealing too much. That's what he had said. I did a little digging. Disrespectful. Exactly. Everybody's got to get their beak wet, but don't be disrespectful. Well, I did a little digging. That promoter's actually Ray Morgan was his name. Okay. Ray Morgan. Ooh, good name. Ray Morgan says it was a pay dispute. And if you go on his Wikipedia, that's what it says, that it was over a pay dispute. And he actually narrated the rise of Bruno San Martino. Now, if you don't know, Bruno San Martino was one of the greatest wrestlers before WWE really became a thing. Before you had, like, your 70s icons, Bruno San Martino was, like, the guy. Was he the guy for WWE, or was he in one of the regions beforehand? He was in one of the regions beforehand, likely NWA, okay. I want to say. He was champion for, I want to say, a record amount of time, something like eight years. But he was the biggest thing before, you know, Hulk Hogan and Stone Cold came around. Right. And Ray Morgan narrated all that. And Vince kind of pushed Ray Morgan out to the side and made him a footnote in history. I mean, Vince controlled the WWE archives, so he can say whatever he wants, and he can put whoever he wants in the archives. True. Ray Morgan got the culture and kind of got left out of that. So originally, Vince Sr. had this idea that every wrestling promotion is like a kingdom. They've got their own territory, their own fiefdom. You don't go into another person's territory without their permission. You have to talk about it, and you have to leave their promotion, their territory alone. It was very tribal, in a sense. With an agreement, your wrestlers could go into their territory and do their performances, but you didn't dare come in and do your own performance with your own wrestlers. Exactly. And Vince, basically from the get-go, had the idea as like, well, I'm just going to take my father's business, the fiefdom that he has, and expand it. And he was talking to his dad about this before all this really happened. And his dad was like, no, you shouldn't do that. You need to leave the kingdoms alone. Let them operate. Vince didn't do this. Vince, and I will give him credit, is a very smart idea. He started buying up properties, so eventually he buys the company from his father. He started Titan Sports, and he starts buying this company. Vince Sr. seems like a very old-school, hard-ass kind of guy. I don't say I love you, I don't show you emotion, I take care of you, but I don't give you that kind of emotion, because emotions are for sissies. That's kind of the, the person that I got the sense Vince Sr. was. Right. Playing chance, do we know how much they, uh, his dad sold him? Six, I want to say it was $700,000. Was that, was that the, was the son father discount kind of thing, or is that usually a good price? What do you think on that eye? I mean, that I don't know, but I, I can tell you that Vince Sr. basically said, here's how it's going to go down. I'm going to sell you the company as long as you can make the payments on time. If you miss any kind of payment of these balloon payments, everything that you put into it goes back to me and you get nothing. That was the deal that he had made originally. And he also came in, Vince Jr. came in with like seven different investors, I think it was. That uh, would be part of Titan Sports that he formed with Linda McMahon. Yeah. Yes. 
But what I what from what I understand, and again, I have not researched like you have. But from what I understand, they were saying that his real genius, the real way he did it, was two things. One, he brought the feel of an MTV rock performance to wrestling. And two, he put it on television. And those two things, he made use of the new television media, and he brought the rock star style panache of a rock and roll show to wrestling. And those two things, they were saying, are what really allowed him to, when he broke in, he then took over. There was no stopping what he was able to do. But it wasn't overnight. No, but it was like he would go to a like a new territory, and because he had he knew he was media savvy, he knew how to utilize the television, utilize the marketing for the television, and because his shows brought that different, unique style that the other shows did, they, they wouldn't like going to a rock concert. There were flashes and lights and everything. Basically, when he came to your territory, there was no way you could compete. It was better if he, than, if, he, better than if he wanted your territory, he had it. Because it was, yeah, it was better than the circus. It was better than going to see the circus. I mean, you got to see people sweating and throwing each other off the ropes and stuff like that. I mean, all testosterone, little kids making memories and fathers. and I mean, even uh, wives were going to these things as well with their husbands. So as Vince starts buying these companies, so what basically Vince does, like you were saying, he goes out, he'll he'll poach different talent. He got talent like Hulk Hogan, Jesse Ventura, Roddy Piper, Ricky Steamboat, Bobby and the Brain Heenan, Mean Gene. I mean, he took all the most known wrestlers of the territory, particularly the NWA, which is the longest running wrestling promotion at the time, and I want to say even now. But he basically... The NWA was a collection of different territories, though, correct? Yes. It wasn't just one territory. It was like a almost like a union. I want to say, as far as I remember, I do know that before WWE, being NWA champion was the biggest thing. Ric Flair was NWA champion for a while, and that was at the time the pinnacle because you would go to a promotion, you would do your show, go to like drive to like Minneapolis, drive to Houston, do the shows, and yeah, you were basically running these territories as their champion. So Vince buys these; he's basically poaching these wrestlers and sort of forcing these companies to shut down. Takes their best stars, makes them into even bigger stars. Companies like Smoky Mountain Wrestling, for example, end up shutting down a couple years later. And I wanted to mention something that Jim Ross talks about in one of the interviews that he had at the time. He was saying that he went to the toilet um, during the time this is all happening. Jim Ross is working for Vince McMahon. And he's sitting on the toilet and he hear a bunch of guys come in. They slam the door open and Jim Ross realizes that, oh, they don't know that I'm here. And they start talking about Vince. They start talking about assassinating Vince. Like, how can we take care of this guy? Well, I know someone who can do it for like $2,000. I mean, they're talking figures. They're, right, they're right. serious about this. At least it sounds serious. You know, Vince says, you know, it later goes on saying maybe they're just trying to be macho because that is a thing in the industry, or maybe they were serious. But, but you have to be somebody like in the wrestling to be using those kind of bathrooms back there. It's not we were like it was open to public. I don't think he was. I don't think he was in the public back. So, so you think? I mean, you think these guys were like inside yeah, industry? Yeah, guys. I mean, there's different conspiracies. I've read into it a little bit. Conspiracy side. <laughs> I mean, that is okay. I never had that thought, but it's not outside the realm of possibility. I mean, like that's the thing about about wrestling is that it's gotten so meta now. Where I, I honestly like, I'll watch something and I'll watch someone hit someone as hard as they can, and I'll watch the dude look at him with a real stern face, and then he hits him as hard as I can, and then I spend the next twenty minutes on social media. I was like, was that real? 
did they really have heat together? You know, that's how meta is. We know that it's a work, but we're trying to figure out what parts are a work and what parts are a shoot because it's so well done in that sense. So do you think this conspiracy, now I'm, I'm more, I'm interested in these conspiracies. Who those guys were? Do you, do you have an idea? Do you have a, um, have you picked up on any no, hypotheses? There's nobody famous, nothing like that. It's nothing, I think it's probably, you know. No, but I mean, were they Vince's guys? Who were they working for? They were definitely uh, not Vince's guys. Right? No, it wasn't no security. It was, it was just kind of like those people that put the stage together and stuff like that. It's, it's one okay. of those like unknown, but they've been in the industry and they're trying to get their head out a little bit too because they want to be wrestlers as well, but they have no talent for it. You okay. know, kind of anger and remorse is what I read into. Interesting. So this all happens in 19, around 1980s, right? Um, and so Vince buys his companies. He starts getting bigger as a promotion. He's still doing commentating and stuff like that. But slowly but surely, the company is growing. Around 1984... 2020 does an expose on wrestling. Essentially, they find one of many people who are disgruntled wrestlers, and they go, why don't you tell us about wrestling, what it really is? Because without going too much into it, sometime around 1940, I want to say from what I read, was that wrestling was real. And then a man hired some thugs to beat up his rival, George Hackenschmidt. The lion was what it was called versus the other guy's name eludes me at the moment. But this happened, big scandal, wrestling essentially goes from being, you know, biggest thing in the country to almost nothing, almost overnight. And that's how you get the little tribal kingdoms that sort of became tight-knit. Well, if they think it's a work, we're going to work them, brother, that kind of thing. Okay. So the interview happens on 2020, and it's Eddie Mansfield is the name of this guy. So Eddie Mansfield basically says, I'm going to show you how we do the wrestling. And in the video, you can see John Stossel, I believe his name is. He's in the ring with John Stossel, and John's like, you're like twice my size. I can't do anything. It's, like, it's fine. And then he very calmly shows him how to do a body slam and a maneuver. And so within maybe about 10, 20 minutes, John Stossel, a 90-pound looking man, is able to body slam Eddie Mansfield, who's at least, you know, 180, 200 pounds, if not more. I don't know. I guess it was roughly about that same time. Girls just want to have fun. Cindy Lauper. Uh, in her video, this tiny little girl is basically manhandling the guy playing her father, who was a pro wrestler. And, and it, I mean, it, it's very obvious that he's reacting and controlling everything. But again, I mean, Cindy Lauper, not a big girl. Able to do these things that make does her Does a music video strong. where she's the one controlling the action. And so this this interview was very damning for the industry. And the biggest, most damning thing was that at some point, Eddie Mansfield is sitting very calmly and he takes a very tiny piece of razor blade and just lightly places it over his forehead. Just enough pressure to do a little mark. And he starts bleeding, completely calm. And he goes, this is how we get color. And they're like, what's color? I'm like, color is when you bleed. Because I believe the saying was red turns to green which means that when you're bleeding people are into it they buy tickets tickets equals money it's a better story and there's a lot of low tricks like that like wrestlers reportedly would drink a beer before they had red turn to green before they got some color they would take painkillers and this to is because they're blood thin the blood exactly yeah, yeah make you bleed better one guy even reportedly would eat like two to three hot dogs on the way to the ring and they were like, why is he doing that? And someone, he gets thrown in the turnbuckle in the corner. Someone kicks him in the gut. He immediately throws up. And they're like, oh, that's why he does that. Okay. <laughs> All right. So the interview comes out. Vince denies his allegations. They do a follow-up interview with one of the wrestlers. His name was Dr. D. John Stothsoul. Sorry. No. 
No, John David Stossel was Schultz. the interviewer. Yes. In the first interview. Did he do two, the second interview as well? He did a second interview with David Schultz, Dr. Right. D. Now, Vince had heard about what's going on with 2020, denied the allegations that wrestling was fake, and then he reportedly according to Dr. Schultz, goes up and says, hey, listen, this guy is going to come in. He's going to interview you. You need to make sure he doesn't punk you. He doesn't make you or the industry look like a bitch. Do what you need to do. We'll John Stossel's you. mustache made most people look like a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> if you are enjoying this show and would like it to keep existing, please support the Cram Network on Patreon.com. That's C-R-A-M-M. Check us out and find even more shows you'll like. So, and if you go back and you watch it, John Stossel was interviewing Dr. D, who's already very clearly agitated. The man is much taller than him, and he's talking, and he's like, oh, you're just coming from a match? He's like, yeah, of course I'm coming from a match. What do you think I'm doing? And John Stossel, being an interviewer and pushing it, goes, so this is all fake, right? I mean, like, what you did is just fake. And Dr. D immediately slaps the tar out of him with authority, like, puts a fear of God in him. Makes a guy kind of like shake. John Stossel sort of does this a little bit and slaps him again. And John Stossel essentially crumbles. I vaguely remember that. Uh, it was it. I mean, it was a thing. Inside edition, you know. John Stossel later said that he lost hearing in his ear from that slap. as a result of it. So it was kind of a big deal. But so David Schultz gets a lot of heat on him, right? Heat being that he's unpopular. He's There's a lot of controversy around that. Understandably so. David says that Vince told him to do all this stuff, we'll move you to a different promotion, let the heat die down, then we'll bring you back. So Vince has David do this and then basically throws him to the curve after not too long. Well, and that's that's not the last or the first person that Vince kind of threw to the curve after promising the world. No, it's not. I mean, around this time, so shortly after that, Vince basically feels all that, does what he needs to do in his mind to protect the business. He then goes on and does WrestleMania. WrestleMania being what you were talking about earlier, where you take stars like Cindy Lauper, Mr. T, Liberace, Muhammad Ali, and get that association with famous people with wrestling. And like you said, it worked. WrestleMania right. was really popular. Psych one did really well. I believe WrestleMania three had an all-time record for a number of views. It was like the most viewed program in the nation at the time. They were saying that that um, for that was kind of one of the other linchpins of his success. After using television and media to get his foundation, he then jumped on the cable bandwagon before most people were jumping on the cable bandwagon. So he had a foothold when cable took over, and. The biggest thing he did was team up with MTV because that made, like you were saying, with Cindy Lauper and the rock stars and people associating MTV with WWE, that is what made it what it was, was that decision to team with MTV. Yes. And, you know, I, I got to I gotta give it to Vince. He, like, he is a smart man. The way he's kind of set everything up, he's always had the little, what's new, what can we get our full tent or foothold in? You know, he would say, well, you can take all my talent that's established and big. I'll just make another talent. There's always new talent. There's not a lot of longevity in wrestling, right? You don't see someone wrestling for 50 years. You see them doing 20, 30 at most, and then it goes to a different person. Right. But uh, that reminded me that Celebrity Deathmatch. You remember that show? I do remember that I show. Remember yeah. That, that, that was awesome. That's where it came from. I mean, that's whenever he started pushing that kind of system. 
into uh, MTV and on corporate altogether. Was was Celebrity Deathmatch a part like a promotional uh, thing for WWE? They did have Stone Cold and The Rock on there, I believe. Okay, yeah, I'm they, pretty they sure had they had a couple a lot of, of well-known wrestlers that would wrestle celebrities and stuff like that. Time it would be celebrity versus celebrity kind of thing. But yeah, dude, I totally forgot about that show. That show was, and it was it was pretty gory too. You know, like the finishers and stuff they would oh, do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I loved it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, okay. So Vince is obviously very successful. Don't be sorry. We need more of your voice. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing that Vince does is that he, and again, this is a smart business savvy thing. He goes before a New Jersey committee because before he does this, everything that he does in the ring has to be approved by a state committee. And it has certain regulations. You have to have a, a medical physician present. There has to be a emergency vehicle on hand. The wrestlers need to get checked out. Basically, checks and balances. Because at this point, it's still considered a sport. Exactly. Yeah, and all the insurance policies that they have to have in place because of it. Yes. And so with that, with the interview coming out that was kind of damning, sort of hurt the industry a lot, Vince goes, screw it. I'll just tell him the truth. So he goes before the committee and goes, this is not real. This is entertainment. We are focused on entertainment. We are not focused on the sport aspect of it we are sports entertainment that's really where that kind of started that he coined that phrase of sports entertainment and he it works they go okay fine you're not part of that anymore and so they're not beholden to all the rules and regulations anymore and so vince says cool that saves me money in the long run now the wrestling community is not happy about that they they go kayfabe is dead what are you doing you know a lot of people didn't agree with that because you're admitting on a federal court that wrestling is not real so obviously he had a lot of heat on him, but it did have the effect of giving people the ability to have their own company much easier. One notable company being ECW was now able to happen because right. you don't have the same regulations. You're not spending $20,000, depending on how you do it, you could be a couple thousand, maybe even less. So on the one hand, it was lauded by the community at the time. He technically birthed ECW and Ring of Honor and all these other smaller promotions. Vince basically makes his decision before the committee sort of makes wrestling easier for other people to start up. He comes out, he says, hey man, it's all fake. He says it on television after denying it when other people are saying it. Changes the entire face of wrestling. Goes up like Tony Starks and just goes, I am Iron Man. Basically. <laughs> I mean, yeah. No, that, he, he, that, he pulls an Iron Man. He just breaks the news to the entire everybody of like, yeah, everyone was right all the time. So after this, in 1989... Sorry, 1994. Vince is indicted um, on steroid, on supplying steroids to the wrestlers. And this is probably the biggest trial of his time because he was looking at real jail time for this. I mean, he was, for lack of a better term, up shit creek without a paddle. Because while this was not necessarily sports and there was no real competition, the winners and losers were already called, steroids were still illegal at a federal level. Not just during sporting competitions, they were actually illegal at a federal level, correct? Yes. Um, and so around the time, so this all happens. And let's go ahead and just say it outright. I, I'm trepidatious about saying a lot of things about Vince, but the man loves beefy men. And I am not afraid to say that. And he would agree with you. Vince himself is a beefcake, but he loves beefy men. I, I would not disagree with you at all. You you don't you also design an men. industry around too. that. Exactly. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, in the Olympics, steroids matter because they give an unfair advantage. 
in sports entertainment, there is no unfair advantage because things are being called ahead of time. You know the winner, you know the loser. There's not any real competition. It is... It's like, for a better word, a gladiator. Except if you knew who was going to win ahead of time. Exactly. Or if the the gladiators knew who was going to win ahead of time. They're looking for the gladiator body. Well, yes, absolutely. I I mean, yeah, the the peak physical manhood, the ultra-testosterone, you know. Testosterone. Testosterone. The San Francisco treat. (laughs) (laughs) Testosterone. But, yeah, I mean, just like, like you said, beefcake. Again, they were illegal at a federal level, so I understand why he got in trouble. But a big, big part of me does not understand why he got in trouble over this. You you could argue that it's a competition. So I still believe there was competition when that happened, but it just wasn't like, well, I need to be better trained than you so I can kick your ass. It went from that to being like, well, I just need to look bigger than you so Vince notices me, senpai, and gives me the opportunity. There is competition, but it's not a competition of who is going to win the match. It's a competition of who takes the chair better, who looks better going through the table. Who's going to put it more is, butts in seats? It is a performance. Yes, it's butts in seats. It's performance. Who gives a better performance? But again, in that instance, I, I cannot be convinced that steroids are a performance-enhancing drug. No, no are, we, are we talking that you know, he was giving them, like, Hey, here's some steroids on the side, kind of thing. Or was he? Or was he like? Uh, Let me just make sure there's no taps on this mic here. <laughs> right, well, no, no, no. The official thing was the doc was giving them. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. Or, or, or is it part of the contract? So Vince is very smart in that I can't confirm or deny this, but he basically, from everyone, from the interviews that I saw, Vince essentially said, "Listen, you're a pretty good size now." But if you happen to pick up these steroids that had just happened to drop on the ground and you were twice the size after a while, there may be a strap in your future. You may have a championship ahead of you. Vince never explicitly said you need to do this or else. He just kind of gave you a little wink and a nudge and a long look and then said. Well, and at some point, would he even have to give that wink and a nudge or would it just become part of the culture enough that... Everyone just understood that you had to have pecs the size of basketballs in order to make it in this industry. That's exactly what happened. As Vince established himself and became and became the, the head honcho, people just knew Vince is a very particular guy. He likes them big in the sense that he wants these bigger wrestlers. And that's that's kind of the culture that was that was promoted. And as a result, so Vince gets indicted, and the guy providing the steroids was a doctor by the name of George Zaharian. Zahorian. Hopefully I'm not saying his name wrong. He's actually still practicing even today. I believe Zahorian is right. Zahorian, That's what I heard. Yeah. He's, he's practicing urology even today. But essentially, he was the one who would send these bags and bags of steroids, uh, allegedly. No, no, he can convict I can say he did it. I'm, I'm pretty sure, yeah, he was yeah. convicted of that one. That one is, a, it's officially, yeah. not allegedly. Yes. But did he take the fall? Like the conspiracies. Oh, I mean, really, the doc is the one who is making this pervasive culture. He's the one that the the guys are trying to impress. He's the one that can get you the promotion. I don't buy that the doc was, like, that influential. 
And I, I agree with you there. The Doc is basically the fall guy. He was the one doing it, but the way Vince set it up, he said, I never told him to do any of that. You know, I just suggested to these wrestlers, I never told anyone to do anything. And that's how he got acquitted. Vince didn't go to jail because of this. Man, he, did, he wore that glove the right way. OJ style. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck it, leave it in. I'm just, I'm just saying. Okay, no, never mind. (laughs) But no, that's a different topic. The doc, the doc was obviously the fall guy. Like he's still practicing now. He's not practicing for pro wrestlers. No, no, no. But he's still he's still practicing doctor. He's still practicing doctor. Urology, I believe. I mean, isn't that breaking the rule? How does that work? I mean, hey, L, quick favor, will you look up urology and tell me? What that entails, because I... It's uh, it's science of the pee-pee. That's what I thought. It's medicine of the pee-pee. Do you guys see a theme going on here with Vince McMahon? What kind of ties together? Like sticks? <laughs> so I mean, I'm just saying. I'm just saying. I mean, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you got a macho guy who's all about being macho, steroids. The penis doctor gets takes the fall. He still practices with penises even now. I mean, you guys get what I'm getting at, right? Like, you, you see what's going on here? Sounds like a Married cup. to the same woman for like 50 years, though. <laughs> Just saying. I mean, you can't deny that Vince does believe in loyalty, but he also cheated on her a lot. You know, like, we'll get into that later because there's a lot of stuff, especially that recently came to light. That well, well, Allegations, well, allegedly. Well, well, I mean, also, what are you going to see? Like, some guy and girl with, like, beautiful body and, you know, pecs and everything? Or do you want to see me and, you know, normal Joe without my shirt off and with the beer belly hanging out? I mean, You know what I'm going to say, right? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm pointing at you right now. That's what I'm doing. But I get what you're saying. But at the same time. I'll be the backyard wrestler. Andre the Giant did not have a six-pack. No, but he that had, man had a keg, but he and was a tall. solid keg. But he was tall. What am I going to be? The it's five not about foot, being t- the five foot seven average guy. Here comes the, Ray. The yeah. Sparrow's <laughs> superior maneuverability often allows it to outwit the far stronger Hawk. Well, Ray Mysterio. Ray Mysterio. But he's Ricochet. A, but Ray Mysterio AJ Styles. Also is a, a phenomenal guy. Whatever. Um, he's he's a, he's a different specimen. Let's put it that way. Ray Mysterio was the short king before short king was even a term. Yes, like he was wearing the mask. He was the dude. Wrestling, you know, and again, getting off on tangent. Wrestling has moved to the smaller guys because yes, the big guys. There's a market for them. I remember when I was training for wrestling, there was a man. There was me, who was like regular tallish height. I was I'm like five foot eleven, right? If I'm standing up on my tippy toes and. Then next to me, there was, you know, the guys I was training with, their regular height. You know, they all looked great. And then there was this guy who was seven feet tall, looked like Paul Bunyan came to life, had a like a pot belly, big beard. And he exactly. had like trunk forearms. And I remember the promoter at the time, the guy who we, we were you know trying out for, he was like, oh, I could really make a story out of you. Exactly. And that guy was really nice. He's unique. He had an IQ of about 70. And I, I, I'm, like, trepidatious to say that because I, I, I'm afraid that he'll find this podcast and hunt me down. <laughs> but he was not smart, and everyone sort of knew that. But the dude looked like Paul Bunyan. Look, you don't have to be smart to be good. That's all I'm saying. You can still put butts in seats. That's what it comes down to. There are certain draws, but then there are certain wrestlers that really kind of hit that pinnacle of they could put the butts in the seats, but they were able to get the butts out of the seats. They were able to really build that excitement. 
that yeah, generated the entire feel of WWE. They're wrestling inside the crowds and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of little tricks where you you don't think it would be something to get a crowd involved, but storytelling is very much a big part. And it could be as something as simple as like, this crowd hates you, they hate this match. I'm just going to keep in a headlock for 12 minutes. And eventually the crowd's going to be like, get up, <laughs> counter him, and get you can get them involved like that. It's a very intricate and interesting process to get someone involved in a match. So so was this uh, soap opera kind of effect before Vince McMahon or after Vince McMahon? It, it was an effect before Vince McMahon. Um, the, I want to say the original Nature Boy, Buddy Rogers... I'm either getting him confused with another guy, but there was a guy who, back before... There was an original Nature Boy that Ric Flair stole the name from. I don't remember the name. And I can't for the life of me... I think it's Buddy Rogers, but there was another... Either it was him or a different wrestler. But this wrestler, back in the 1950s, before TV had color, he would come out, and maybe it was Bored George, but he would, like, throw flowers in the ring, and he would be wearing, like... He would be wearing, like, this ostentatious robe, and the referee would go to, like, touch him and, like, you know, check him for, like, weapons and touch his knee. And he would get his servant to get a brush and just brush off where the referee touched him. And he had that that thing that made people hate him. But that's what was so good. Because he made you hate... You knew this guy for 30 seconds and you hated him. That's special. That takes skill. I, I, I have to say, it was the flare flop that really finally brought me around... Uh, and really kind of gave me that appreciation. The amount of celebrated hubris, and yet with well-deserved consequences, I just, I mean, that's like one of those sitting around the campfire stories. It's not just cultural, it's transcultural. The idea of a well-deserved comeuppance after hubris. And it made me realize that WWE and these storylines really tap into some of the more primal stories of man. And I think that's one of the reasons why they're so successful is they they really tap into those primal stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, you look at the storylines, it's, oh, you took my girl, I'm going to fight you. We're fighting for this girl. We're, Eddie Guerrero, we're fighting for our son, Dominic. You know, I don't like you because you screwed me out of the title, so now we're enemies. (laughs) You're right. There's a lot of these very primal things that you can relate with right off the bat. But you also have just, like, the, the backstories that come, come with all of that. Um, it's not just about, like, you know, you screwed me out of this title. It's that I am a caricature of something we all hate about ourselves. And you're going to watch me, at some point this season, get my well-deserved comeuppance. And you see, that's that's what's really great about wrestling, that even with all the stuff that's happened, it still survives even now. And to tie into that, so in 94, sorry, in 97, the Montreal Screwjob. Are you guys familiar with that? Uh, I am familiar with the sex act of the exact same name, which coincidentally also involves a submission hold and a cross-legged Boston crab. But what's your interpretation of it? <laughs> the Montreal. Oh, you want to talk about the wrestling? One? <laughs> we should probably talk about the wrestling one. Maybe, uh, maybe that one we talk right. about it later in a different podcast. <laughs> like, let's rate it in. The after hours. Uh, yeah, the, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two smarts in the dark. Trademark <laughs> <laughs> that one right um, now. <laughs> so the, the Montreal Screwjob was basically Bret Hart, one of the most, the hitman, one of the most famous wrestlers of the 90s, Purple Shades, very distinctive music. He was unhappy with where he was and he was going to leave for WCW. Was he Triple H? 
No, Triple H uh, came after Bret Hart. Okay, okay. Yeah. Oh, you said Hitman and Hart, and I was like, man, we just need one more H, and that may be the guy I'm thinking of. Okay. Oh, no, Bret Hart. Was, it, was, was he a face or a heel? Bret was a face. Okay. Yes. Um, Long, dark hair. Always like sweaty or wet, whatever. It was always wet. It had that curly look. Yeah, but look, yeah. and then he always, I believe it was either purple or red. I can't remember the jumpsuit that he I wore. I think it was always pink. Black and pink is what is he typically black and wore. Pink? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, Because he had those shades and like, and the, the music was very iconic. But he, he was one of the biggest things of the 90s. And he actually helped Stone Cold become the super popular person that he was. Um, were they like a tag team duo at any point? They had a program. Stone Cold became a bad guy. He basically said, I'm going to be Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'm going to be this hardcore killer, blah, blah, blah. Based it off a real person. Um, but Bret's the one who really transformed it. Because at the time, Stone Cold was the, the bad guy. Bret Hart was the good guy. They had a match, a submission match, which, if you didn't know, Bret Hart was a submission specialist. He okay. was a sharpshooter. He made it famous. You see it even today. They had it. Stone Cold has nothing like that, okay? He, didn't, he had no submission hold that I know of that was like... Really that great. He had the two fingers. Exactly. But oh, okay, okay. That was Stone Cold with the two fingers yes. straight up. Okay. Drinking okay. the beer. Yes. And, yeah. He, like could, a part of his could, finisher. Like whenever he flipped you off, he knew. Could stop a rampaging bull that was coming across, having just come off the ropes, full steam ahead for the spear, and just ba bam, stop him in his tracks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. But they had a match, and they went in with Brett being the good guy, Austin being the bad guy. By the time they left the ring, Bret Hart was the bad guy, Austin was the good guy. Wow. That's how good of a storyteller they were, because Bret Hart basically, towards the end of the match, put him in the sharpshooter. Stone Cold Steve Austin was bleeding profusely, and he was in the sharpshooter, and he's screaming, and Brett's like, tap out, and he refuses to tap out. And the crowd, through their actions, slowly turned on Brett and started cheering for Vince. And that was kind of the rise of it. Nice. Now, fast forward a little bit further. Bret Hart's going to leave the company. He's currently the champ. And Vince goes, I need you to drop the title before you leave. And he goes, fine. You need to drop it to HBK, Shawn Michaels, in your hometown. Absolutely not. Are you crazy? What are you telling me? Was it just a hometown rep thing? Or was it a Shawn Michaels thing? It was a little bit of both. Uh, Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels had a very sordid and heated history. Shawn Michaels, once he found God, cooled down a lot from what I understand, from what I've sort of read. But before that, he was a hothead, and he was very difficult to work with. But he's also one of the best wrestlers in the world at the time. So he, he kind of blurred the lines between the show and who he was. Yes. Uh, the showstopper was very much acted like that as supposedly backstage so they had an intense rivalry they didn't like each other these they they saw themselves as black and white just two different sides of a coin that could not come come together it was a perfect yin and yang during that time honestly i mean they both were very athletic very high flyers compared to the most of the bigger guys okay oh yeah so I mean, they made a, uh, I believe a, one of the matches was so iconic that they both were like super tired and like they couldn't really move. And it was like, whoever stands up wins the match. And they were both like so, <laughs> limping on the, yeah. on the, on the mat. And you're Struggling sitting, to get up. Yeah. And you're sitting there, come on, let's go. But they, okay. So Vince goes, you need to drop the title. And right. Brett, Brett Hardy goes, no, you need to trust me. I'm going to drop the title after I beat Brett or after I beat HBK. The next night on Raw. Hadn't someone left with the title before? 
Yes. A female wrestler by the name of Medusa, when the Monday Night Wars were going on, she had left WWF or WWE with her title. It, she basically finagled it. She was out of the contract. She still had the title. She goes on WCW, drops it right in the trash on live TV. Huge ratings. You never saw her again because WWE won and she was stricken from the record. I don't, you really don't hear about her after Ooh. that. Gotcha. But, so Black Vince, world. yeah, it was, yeah. So Vince is so worried about Vince this. could not let him take the title if he left. Yes. In Vince's eyes, he said he saw that if you don't do business, I will do business for you. And you, you, you'll hear that. And if you listen to interviews, you'll hear them say that a lot. But Vince felt he had no choice. Bret Hart came from a spot where he said, dude, you helped me become Bret the Hitman Hart. This is who I am. You need to trust me. Don't we, haven't we worked together long enough that you can trust me to do this? That's where Bret was coming from. And so in a very in classic Vince fashion, he goes and he gets his like biggest lackeys. Let's not say lackeys, compatriots. Okay. Pat Patterson, a couple of different guys like that. And so he takes them and he goes, listen, here's what's going to go down. Tells him the plan. Fast forward to, I believe, Survivor Series. I want to say what it was. Um, they're having the match. And Bret Hart puts, you know, is, is wrestling with HBK. HBK puts him in his own finisher, the sharpshooter. And within seconds, the referee goes, looks at him and goes, ring the bell, ring the bell. He tapped out. HBK stays in the ring, looks confused. He later said that he knew what was going on. Referee books it. He's like, the, Bret Hart's going to kick my ass if he sees right. it. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he just grew now, how and just I have to interject and and ask this question: How into the storyline are the refs? They one hundred percent know what's going on, so they're not hit with surprises, and they know when to get out of the way. When to get out of the way, when to tell the guys. I mean, nowadays they have earpieces, and they're like, they're even part of me is trepidatious. They're part this. of the choreography. They they do know they'll they'll go up to them like, hey you need to go on the turnbuckle and then the fireworks will go off and they'll be like whoa no one fucking told me that and then you'll see them do it they do they are a pretty big part of it okay okay so he was I believe Earl so Hebner. they're kind of basically on set producers in a sense they they do help with the pacing of the match they'll tell guys you've got like so long left hey you need to go ahead and like do this hey let's go to the finish that kind of thing but for the most part it's usually someone is either directing the talent on what to do it or the wrestlers themselves are doing it okay but the referee knew what was going on which is why he got out of dodge but they will have matches where the the referee will actually interject or be the celebrity referee well and i've seen i've seen uh, clips where referees will get hit by chairs and they're obvi- very very obviously taking the hit they're, you know, they are act performing along yes. with everybody else. Um, so I was just wondering, you know, do they exist outside of the performance? Like if Vince McMahon just goes and tells a ref, hey, this is what is going to happen. Do they have the power or control inside of the ring to simply make that happen? As far as I know, yes. If wrestling is a bubble, the... If it's its own ocean, the referees are divers. They dive in into the ring and tell the ref, the other wrestlers what's going on, how much time you got left, that kind of thing. Okay. Before, it used to be a, let's talk about it beforehand. Okay, shit. What are these guys going to do next? Hopefully I remember. But nowadays with the earpiece, it's a lot easier to do that. I just, I, I remember the very first time I ever saw someone in a ring get hit by a chair. And then I looked at the ref and I was sitting there going, okay, so they're useless, right? 
<laughs> because they're, I mean, they're supposed to be referees and people are going through tables. Well, that's the thing. Obviously, the ref's not paying attention if someone's going through a fucking table. <laughs> that's the thing with refs. They're a source of authority, but they also need to look feeble. And if they get hit by a wrestler, they need to, like, make it look like they just got rocked. Right. Because okay. otherwise... If you get a buff referee, he's going to take away from, you know, the actual match. Unless it's a special guest referee, which is designed to do that. Gotcha. But yes, very much in on it. I believe Hebner exits the ring. It was a really big deal. I mean, Bret Hart spit on Vince on live TV. He signaled WCW with his hands. He said, fuck this company. Fuck Vince again. I'm out. Yep. Yeah. And so the next night... But again, he spit on him on live TV. Yeah, okay, that sounds like something a wrestler would do to promote a fight. How much of this is story? How much of this is reality? How much of this is hurt feelings? How much of this is performative? Therefore lies the dichotomy of wrestling. Sometimes it's really hard to tell because the lines are so blurred. But everyone says that this is 100% real. This was, you know, this was going to happen. Bret Hart left the company for the longest time. Didn't come back until, like, 2014. But at the time, nobody knew. that People were like, is this, is this part of the storyline? It, it would really blurred the line. Right. And Vince sort of saw the ire that he was gaining. And the next time on Monday Night Raw goes, well, if they want to make me the villain, then I'll be the villain. <laughs> and so Vince basically goes on Monday Night Raw and in, in later interviews goes, I didn't screw Brett. Brett screwed Brett. Right. And essentially gave the birth to the Mr. McMahon character who, after we take this short break, we will talk about how he was the greatest antagonist to uh, a small minor character called Stone Cold Steve Austin. You may have heard of him. At some so point. He, he was finally able to bring himself into the ring and be a wrestler, just like he told his daddy so many, many years ago. Exactly, yes. That's exactly what he did. All right, well... Uh, we will get into this a little bit next week, uh, see, uh, see where these storylines lead us and what, uh, some of the consequences of blurring the lines between story and reality. Until next week, I'm Mike. I'm Ray. I'm Adan. And we hope you have enjoyed listening to us. Uh, that's a horrible send off. Uh, no, that's, that's completely we, we can figure something out Peace later. out, bitches. <laughs> <laughs>